Hear that? It's the sound of you catching up on all the latest and greatest fintech news, trends, and updates thanks to Streetworthy, Yield Street's bi-weekly newsletter. Stay in the know with CEO Melinda Mahiri as he takes a closer look at what's happening in the fintech space, then breaks down what each story could mean for investors like you. Give your portfolio the edge it deserves and subscribe to Streetworthy on LinkedIn today. Welcome to The Yield, the official podcast of Yield Street. Every week, we bring you the latest market insights across our asset classes and products from subject matter experts. Our aim is to break the outdated mold of investing and help you add financial fuel to your ambitions through innovative investing products and strategies, typically unavailable to most investors. Realize your next level with The Yield. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. The views you are about to hear do not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street. This podcast is intended to be strictly informational and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a research report, investment advice, or the offer or sale of securities or any investment product. Now, let's get into the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Yield. Make sure to subscribe to the show and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube, and leave a review if you're enjoying the content. In case we haven't met before, I'm your host, Peter Kerr, and I'm the Senior Director of Product Marketing here at Yield Street. Today, I'm joined by Marco Santarelli, who is an investor, author, Inc. 1000 entrepreneur, and the founder of Norada Real Estate Investments. Marco, welcome to the show. Peter, it's an honor to be on your show. Thank you very much. Yeah, very excited. Uh, you know, it's hot and humid here in New York, but it does look uh, awfully nice there in Southern California. It's uh, it's hot, but not as humid. <laughs> it's <still nice. laughs> That's why so many people move here. It's just the beautiful weather. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's always a tough thing to kind of pass, especially as we get to some of the darker, uh, colder months here uh, in New York. It's always, why don't we live in Florida or California? But uh, maybe to start, you can walk even through a little bit about your background and also a little bit about Norada. Sure. Well, just real brief. Um, I like to consider myself a serial entrepreneur. I have been interested in real estate investing, creating wealth and creating passive income since I was young in my early teens. And I don't know why I felt that way. Um, I, I came from a, just a very average family. Um, you know, we didn't come from wealth, but I took it upon myself to just basically study, you know, any, anything and everything I could about real estate investing and uh, business. Uh, bought my first rental property when I was 18 years old and um, the writing was on the wall. So I just kind of continued down that road, buying more property, getting my real estate license, selling real estate, which I didn't really like, but I was doing well at but uh, in 2003, when real estate was hot all around the country, I decided to start going full-time into real estate investing. And I built a very large portfolio. In fact, I acquired 83 units, 83 doors in a nine month period. And uh, people were coming to me saying, Hey, you know, how are you doing this? Like, can you help me mentor me, coach me? And I said, I'm sorry, I just don't have the time. But that's the light bulb moment. You know, when you see a need and as an entrepreneur, you want to fill that need. And that's where um, I started the current company 18 and a half years ago of Norada Real Estate Investments to help other people with a completely turnkey solution to invest in real estate. But, you know, I've always been a serial entrepreneur. I've, I've dabbled in all kinds of industries from coffee to crypto to, you know, new construction, uh, flipping homes, buying rental portfolios, doing short-term rentals. You know, that's just a brief summary, but, you know, I, I just I just love the field of educating people and teaching them how to invest and how to create wealth. And so to that point, 
overall, what would you say are some of the biggest points that kind of uh, don't allow right now or, or prohibit people from making some of these investments, particularly outside of, let's say, the stock market? So you mentioned a lot about education needed for real estate. Um, where do you think some of those gaps are most prevalent right now? Well, you know, one of the things I say in, in at the beginning of, of most of my presentations is ignorance is blank. And I let people kind of fill in the blank on that. And most people, interestingly enough, will say ignorance is bliss. And although that may be true, the reality is, is that ignorance is expensive. What you don't know is costing you time and money and opportunity. And so you really need to be a student of whatever you want to be good at. And if that's investing and creating, you know, wealth and uh, generating additional sources of income, you need to learn whether it's listening to your show, you know, being your podcast, other people's podcast books, which really, and honestly, were mentors for me over the years. You know, you can go to Amazon and find, you know, hundreds of books, thousands of books and on any kind of topic. And it's inexpensive. Like it's anywhere from free to 20 bucks. So there's no excuse not to educate yourself, but that knowledge will help you become a good investor. And if you're a good investor already, that knowledge will help you, you know, get to become a great investor. And so to me, that's a cornerstone It's just always be a student. I, I know Robert Kiyosaki. I've been on a couple of cruises with Robert Kiyosaki, you know, the author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And, you know, it, it, it blows me away to watch him. He's a perpetual student. He'll always be at the back of the room with a notepad, taking notes, regardless of who's talking or speaking, even if they are, even if they are essentially newbies, you know, just getting started because you never know what you could learn from, from that individual. So fundamentally speaking, you really need to just work on yourself first, you know, build, build and develop what's between your ears and, and be as knowledgeable as you can. Doesn't mean you need to be an expert. But then you can take that knowledge and build a team around you. And that is really how you can accelerate and hit the gas pedal and, um, and accomplish great things. Now I have to apologize. I, I, I went off on a tangent. <laughs> I need to go back to your question. It was mostly just around like, you know, what you thought were some of the big education gaps right now, um, particularly when it comes to kind of doing things maybe for the first time outside of, you know, easy things like stocks and bonds, perhaps like, you know, where do you think people can get started? And certainly, you know, a lot of your points probably hold true, which is, you know, always be learning. Yeah. You know, sadly, you talk about education gaps. The biggest education gap that I believe is out there is really in the school system and not just the public school system. You know, my, my daughter is now going into 10th grade and I've been through public, the public school system. And I know a lot of people who are involved in the public school system. Sadly, we don't get financial education in schools. Even when you get to college and university level, unless you're specializing in something, whether it be finance or economics, you're really not getting much of an education in terms of money, the concept of money. So it's really upon the parents who are probably not very good teachers or examples of creating wealth. And I'm speaking in general and for a great majority of the US population. So the gap is really just the lack of knowledge and the lack of experience and the lack of education that's out there. And I'm not blaming anyone or, or an institution like the school system, it's just it's just the way it is. So it's upon ourselves, we have to take it upon ourselves to actually you know fill in those gaps. But there's many opportunities out there, you know, whether it be, you know, equities, stocks, you know, um, uh, real estate, promissory notes, even to some degree crypto, there's a lot of opportunities out there, but you can't really invest successfully in anything unless you have a, a good understanding of what it is you're investing in and, and being able to write, ask the right questions. 
So long answer to your short question, but you know, the gap to me is really just education based. And then when you think about things like, you know, real estate and, and certainly a passion of yours, what are some of the key considerations for why people should be thinking about, you know, real estate and how do you kind of think about that in the context of a portfolio? Well, the thing with real estate is you don't need to be a sophisticated or accredited investor. Literally anybody could invest in real estate. Does that every, should everybody be investing in real estate? Uh, no, I'm not saying that. It is not for everybody. Some people just don't have the responsibility or, or the desire, the willpower. I mean, for whatever reason, they, they shouldn't be invested in real estate, but it's accessible to everybody. And real estate has been the most historically proven asset class in terms of wealth preservation, wealth generation, and um, and generating passive income. Not only that, it, it, it's 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 part of your portfolio that you can you could pass along to your heirs, um, essentially debt free and uh, tax free if you do it right, if you structure it right. So, is it the only asset class you should invest in? I'm not saying that but it's one of the most powerful. It's certainly the most historically proven, uh, but it's, it's, it's a great place to start. And in fact, a lot of people who create financial freedom, financial independence for themselves, do it solely through investing in real estate. And again, I'm not trying to pitch real estate as the, the be all end all. I'm, I'm involved in equities and, and startups and all kinds of things. In my world, the best investment you can make actually is in your own business or someone else's business that you are a principal of or a partner. That is definitely not for everybody. Uh, businesses come with high risk, but also high reward. There's no cap. There's no ceiling to how much you can generate in terms of cash flow or rates of return when it comes to business. It's it's that's the beautiful thing about it, and there's tremendous tax benefits. But when you take one step down, what is widely available to everybody? It's that asset class of real estate. So investment real estate, ideally residential, because that's the that's what I love the most allows you to create that passive income, allows you to create and build wealth over time. It gives you tremendous tax benefits. It allows you to use OPM, other people's money, to make those acquisitions and leverage your investment capital, which could be as little as 20% of, of that purchase price, borrow the other 80% while you are taking 100% of all the benefits. You have 100% of the cash flow, 100% of the appreciation, 100% of the tax benefits, but you're only putting as little as 20 to 25% down. That makes it a very powerful and compelling investment, especially when you start to compare it to other asset classes. So, I, I mean, I'm very bullish, as you can tell, on real estate just because it's, it's done well for me and literally millions of people around the world and in this country. And, then, you know, there, there are so many ways to participate in real estate, right? One of the most, uh, you know, primary and, and, and innate ways for us is actually to own your own, own your own home, right? But what are some of the other ways that maybe folks can actually participate in real estate? Certainly that could be purchasing a couple of, uh, you know, rental properties, but there's also other ways, you know, via professional managers, et cetera. Maybe you could walk some uh, folks through a couple of those different ways. You know, I'm just going to comment on your first comment before I answer your question. You know, you, you mentioned that your home is a way to invest in real estate. You could argue that that's not the case. Now, if you, and the first person to actually bring this up and publicize it, and you probably know this, was actually Robert Kiyosaki. In his original book that has become the number one best-selling finance book in the world, he points out that your home, in other words, your principal residence, let's just be perfectly clear here, your home is not an asset. It's actually a liability. It's an asset to those who you owe money to, which could be the bank in the form of a mortgage. It could be the county and the city in the form of property taxes. 
So the simple definition there is, does your home put money in your pocket or does it take money out of your pocket? And the answer is it takes money out of your pocket. I mean, you definitely need a place to live. So you're going to rent or buy regardless, unless you're living with somebody and you, you know, you're free riding. But the, the, at the end of the day, you're paying to maintain and purchase that roof over your head. And so it's actually a liability. It's arguably not an asset. Now, a lot of people think it's an asset and it's their you know investment and it's going to become their retirement account. And some people are forced into that situation where you know they have to use or tap into the equity in their home to survive when they retire or when they get into their older years. So I'm really just making a comment on your comment just to point out that you could arguably say that your home as a principal residence is not actually an investment. You can you could label it as an asset, but you know, if you talk to people like Robert Kiyosaki, they're gonna say it's not an asset, it's a liability. Now, having said that, your question was about using real estate. How can you invest in real estate as an investment? There are many ways to do that. I mean, you could, if you want to go the institutional route, obviously there are REITs, you know, real estate investment trusts, which, you know, are basically institutional and wall street based investments. That is the, probably one of the most passive ways to invest in real estate. However, you have to understand that number one, you're not a direct investor in, in that real estate, you're investing in paper you are buying shares or equity in a company, a REIT that buys and owns real estate as those assets under management. That's all well and fine, but you just have to understand that you are not a direct investor. The other way to go about it is to be a direct investor. And that's whether you do it through a syndication where you are a limited partner or a partner in a group investment where you have uh, a syndicator that puts a deal together, goes and finds a deal, creates that deal, and you participate, you write on the coattails of, of those syndicators and you participate in a, a real estate deal. Uh, that's, that's a great way to go. Now you are a direct owner. You have a piece of the pie. You get the tax benefits, you get the cash flow, you get equity growth, you get pretty much all the benefits that come along with owning real estate, but in a partnership format. Last but not least is just to be an absolute direct owner. And that's where you're purchasing the real estate yourself or with your spouse. And now you have complete control and complete ownership of the property. Uh, you're the CEO, you direct and dictate what goes, but you get all the benefits, all the cash flow, equity growth, amortization on that loan, um, the tax benefits, uh, which are the depreciation and, um, and the wealth that comes along with it over time. So is one better than the other? I mean, you, you could you could argue depending on what your needs are and what your wants are. My personal preference and what I would argue is probably the, the best way to go if it fits inside your buy box is to really be a direct investor. And a lot of people in this country have created wealth and, and financial freedom just buying one rental property at a time, whether it's a house um, or a duplex or even a fourplex, but just building a portfolio, however slow or however fast, that's the try, tried and true way. It's a powerful way. And then how do you even think about, you know, let's say you start off with the decision to do a direct property. How do you even think about building a portfolio of homes and what are some of the considerations there just with actually managing and operating? Wow. The answer to that question is, is a one hour answer. <laughs> so the considerations is this, uh, you know, I, I created a formula a long time ago that really is the basis for what we do, um, you know, at my company here. What I define as turnkey, you know, turnkey is is a kind of, there's no formal definition, it's kind of kicked around. Sadly, people have distorted that and, and, and used it to describe things that I don't consider to be turnkey. But when you're investing in real estate, first of all, I have, I have these 
10 rules of successful real estate investing. One of those rules is to be market agnostic. And what that means is you're not married to any particular market, especially your own backyard. The, a lot of so-called gurus say, you know, you should invest within a one hour or two hour radius of where you live. Well, that's all well and fine. That's great if you're a flipper, but that doesn't necessarily work, especially if you're in an expensive market like where you live in New York, uh, or if you're in the coastal markets, especially in California, or in Denver, Colorado, or Washington, DC, you know, these markets are very expensive and the numbers don't pencil out. The rent to price ratios are, are very much out of whack. So you have to be market agnostic so you can pick markets where you have strong fundamentals, building safety and, and, and growth potential for your investment. And at the same time, gives you the ability to grow in that market and have cash flow. So when I talk about buying property that is essentially turnkey, I'm talking about properties in good markets with strong fundamentals, good neighborhoods, properties that are new or like new, cash flow positive, professionally managed, full service professional management, unless you know what you're doing, you want to self-manage. And, um, and, and then really that's the formula. That's kind of the, the, the framework that I started with um, when I started going full-time uh, in 2003. And to this day, that's exactly the foundation that we work off of. So as far as getting started, you know, that's kind of a long answer to your question, but really it's it's choose the right market where you feel comfortable investing your hard-earned dollars in, your, your investment capital. The fundamentals that I look for and that we look for are this. You want markets that have jobs and job growth a diversified economy. You don't want it to be a what I call a one-trick pony market. Like I hate to use Houston as an example, but uh, markets that are heavily dependent on oil and gas, for example, can have disruptions, especially in recessions or when you have uh, disruptions in that industry. So diverse markets, jobs and job growth, and ideally population growth. You want organic growth, but you want positive net migration. So at the end of the day, you have a population growth in a market where you're investing because that helps to support the housing market. It not only supports pricing and rent values, rent rates, but it also helps to push them up and keep pace or exceed the pace of real inflation. So the fundamentals have to be there. And then from the neighborhood perspective, I like to classify neighborhoods as A's, B's, C's, and D's. A are your high-end premium neighborhoods. This is where you have your, you know, higher end homes, your white collar communities, strong demographics. Your bees are more of your bread and butter communities. It's a cross between white collar and blue collar employment. Again, this is this is, you know, middle America, middle class. This is where the bulk of the population live. C class neighborhoods are can be sketchy. And my advice to people is be very careful. It's not necessarily the place you want to start is a C class neighborhood. It's generally speaking, your lower income. The issues I have with C-class neighborhoods is uh, higher turnover, more transient, more problems with tenants in general. I say that anecdotally as well as, you know, factually from property managers. So it's not the place to cut your teeth. I would suggest investors start with good, good markets with strong fundamentals and focus on B, B plus, A minus neighborhoods because that's the biggest bang for the buck. It's a hybrid of everything. It's gonna give you the highest cap rates and cash on cash returns. But at the same time, you have a very a very good demographic and a large tenant pool to draw from. In other words, they're desirable areas. 
Is that more than you asked me for? No, no, it's, it's very helpful. Um, you know, kind of along those lines too, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts overall on kind of like the, the real estate market. Um, you talked a lot about, you know, growing populations and some of the core fundamentals that need to be there. Has anything that's kind of occurred over the last six months or so, you know, given you any concern or maybe even uh, the opposite of that, right? Like um, a feeling of opportunity overall. There are always opportunities if you're market agnostic, but um, what we've what we've seen since January of this year has been something that we haven't seen for 41 years. So we saw mortgage rates go from about 3.22 in the first week, 3.22% in the first week of January to uh, about five and a half percent within a very short period of time. Like we're talking several months. Uh, that hasn't happened in 41 years. So what did that do? Well, it increased mortgage payments on average 32%. So people's mortgage payments, whether they were getting a new mortgage or had to requalify for financing, uh, saw a 32% increase in their mortgage financing. So that impacted homeowners, new home buyers, and of course, real estate investors. Is that a bad thing? Not necessarily. It just disqualifies a certain percentage of the, uh, you know, the, the market. However, we've seen most markets around the country go from being what we call uh, classify as being very strong markets to now what we classify as strong markets. So sales have slowed down, but sales are still very strong. Interest has slowed down, but interest is still strong. And the reason for that is because there's this dynamic between supply and demand. We have an overall shortage of housing. The supply is is pretty thin compared to the demand that's out there. Even now with higher interest rates, demand outpaces. We don't have enough inventory in most markets around the country to keep up with the existing demand, let alone future demand. I don't expect interest rates to continue to increase. Um, they'll probably peter around for the next six months. Once the Fed feels it has uh, inflation under control, we'll start to see rates start to come down again, probably slowly, but we'll see rates you know, start to normalize again because the, the last thing that the federal government wants to do in the Fed is cr- crush or kill the housing market. It's a huge employer. It's a significant part of our economy, but there's a lot of opportunity still out there. So that you know, that's the part about you know mortgage rates and to some degree inflation. Uh, housing demand is still strong. There is a lack of inventory in most markets. Some markets are seeing a huge amount of new construction, which actually is a little bit alarming um, and concerning for me. Markets like Austin, for example, parts of Idaho, are seeing a lot more permits being pulled for new home construction than there is in terms of demand at this point in time. So if those dynamics shift, you'll see a softening of that market and prices coming down. But in general terms, what we've seen is a softening uh, across the country in terms of prices. Price appreciation appreciation has slowed down. It's been very strong over the last six months, but it'll flatten out is our prediction over the next six months. So to the end of the year, we'll still see in general markets appreciating between five and 8% to close out this year. That's not a bad thing. In fact, if you look at it, that's still above historic norms. You know, historic norms are probably closer to 7%. Again, taking averages, which I don't like to do because every market is unique. Every market is local. And what happens in one market is different than what happens in another market. But, you know, just to use uh, the country as a barometer, um, we're still seeing, you know, strong growth and the demand is there to support it. No, fantastic. And, and you know, 
you mentioned some some opportunities overall. What do you think, you know, when you look out five years from now, what might be different in the real estate market that maybe folks aren't really thinking about today? Well, that's that's a good question. You know, it's easy to see down the road one to two years with real estate because real estate is a very slow moving asset class and you can make predictions of what's going to happen you know, over the next six to 12 months, just based on uh, supply, demand, interest rates, um, the economy in general, um, employment and that kind of stuff. It's really hard to make a prediction, you know, what's gonna happen five years from now, because we don't know, you know, what, um, you know, what rates will be like then, what Fed policy will be, uh, what monetary and fiscal policies will look like. Are we gonna have, you know, other, other wars, you know, with, with Russia um, and Ukraine and and who knows where else, uh, you know, there's just a lot of variables. But if if we assumed that a lot of that stuff was fairly constant, I would say that housing would probably normalize considerably. I think supply, the lack of supply, will catch up to to the amount of demand uh, by 2030. A lot of the a lot of the data I'm looking at and and, and the reports that I'm seeing are showing that we are building uh, fast enough to create enough inventory to fill that supply. So I, I, I think there will be a normalization in terms of appreciation rates. It won't be what we saw in the last two years, which has been just, you know, crazy. You know, we've averaged almost 20% per year for the last two years, which is insane. So um, hopefully inflation will be, you know, under control by then. Um, we've seen a lot of inflation over the last couple of years. And part of that was because of supply chain constraints. But a big part of that was also because of lots of loose loose money and credit being you know pumped into the economy and the system. So I would like to, I would expect, and I would like to see a normalization of, of, of the housing market and local markets around the country, you know, back to what we'll call historic norms of four to 7%. Uh, annual price appreciation, which is still, uh, you know, a little on the high side, but still more more in line with the mean. So I don't know if I'm answering your question about a five year prediction, but it's really hard to do five years. Yeah, no, it makes a ton of sense. And you know, for all the listeners that might be interested in learning more about some of your thoughts or anything else that you do, maybe could remind them all how do they can find you. Yeah, for sure. So our 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 mothership website and our home, if you will, is noradarealestate.com, N-O-R-A-D-A, noradarealestate.com. And then we put out a ton of content. We, we've got probably two market spotlights or market reports that are incredibly detailed every week. And so people, you know, wanting to understand what's going on around the country, especially in certain markets and uh, what's going on in terms of real estate investing in general, there's tons of content on our blog. And then I put, I talk about some of that on our, on our podcast, which is called passive real estate investing, and it's available everywhere. Very simple name, just passive real estate investing. And the website is the same name, passive real estate investing.com. Fantastic. And of course, thank you uh, so much for joining us today. And of course, to all of our listeners, uh, thank you, of course, for joining. Make sure to subscribe to the show and we'll see you next week. Thank you, Peter. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Yield. For the latest updates on the alternative investing space, go to yieldstreet.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed the show, feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts as this will help other investors like yourself find our show. If you have any questions, please visit us at yieldstreet.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week. 
The Yield Street podcast you just heard only reflects the opinions of the host, who is an associated person of Yield Street and does not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street or any of its affiliates or other associates. The podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any security and is not an offer or sale of any securities or investment products. The podcast is also not a research report and is not intended to be and should not be construed as investment advice. Support for this podcast comes from Yield Street. Trying to time the stock market can lead to regret. At Yield Street, our alternative investments are designed to create predictable secondary income streams, providing you with tools to help put your money to work immediately. These investments in asset classes like art, real estate, and legal finance typically have low correlation with the stock market and target annual yields up to 7 to 10%. Welcome to the next generation of investing. Welcome to Yield Street. Sign up today at YieldStreet.com.